Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. What happens when your immune cells make a mistake and attack the very cells they were meant to protect? When your immune system turns on you, autoimmune diseases, tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. I'm Carter Holm, tonight's Prairie Doc host. Thank you for joining us this evening as we continue to provide health information based on science, built on trust during our 22nd season. Tonight we will be discussing autoimmune diseases. Joining us in the SDPB studio in Rapid City are Dr. Esperanza Argenziano with Monument Health Rapid City and Dr. Abigail Finley from Rapid City Medical Center, Mount Rushmore Road. Welcome. Thank you. So Dr. Arginziano, please tell us about yourself and your practice. Sure, happy to be here. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Colorado and then I was in the Air Force for six years. And then once I got out, I was in Grand Forks, North Dakota and that started my medical journey. And I practiced for eight years in Grand Forks, North Dakota before coming here to Rapid City, which I love. And I've been here for two years. And Dr. Finley, can you tell us about your practice? Absolutely, thanks for having me. So I'm actually from New Orleans, Louisiana, originally. Um, went and did my training down there. And my husband is from South Dakota originally. So after we completed our training, we had two little boys and decided Rapid City was the right fit for us. And we've been up here a little more than a year and just really loving being here. And I practice allergy and immunology at Rapid City Medical Center now. So let's just kind of start with the basics. What is an autoimmune disease? Can we talk about how varied and, and uh, different our, our experiences have been? Dr. Arginziano? Sure. Uh, patients come into me when they're experiencing symptoms. When their immune system gets confused, it starts attacking certain parts of their body that it is not meant to, which can lead to arthritis, muscle weakness, um, sometimes uh, lung inflammation, kidney inflammation, and I help them through that journey. We're a partnership and we journey through their disease, get them on the right treatments, and get them onto the path of healing. Now, Dr. Finley, same question, autoimmune disease. Yeah, and so I think that's where the immune system is so interesting because rheumatology and allergy immunology feel like two different fields, but they both involve this immune dysregulation patients with allergies have an abnormal immune response to the world around them. Something you shouldn't be allergic to, like bread or peanuts, becomes something your body develops an immune response to. And then on the other side of things, we see patients with poorly functioning immune systems who have immunodeficiencies, where that immune system now is not responding in the way it should to normal pathogens. And so we really are working with the immune system in almost every single thing that we treat um, in our practice. So let's, let's break it down even further. What is our immune system? How does it work? 
and why do we sometimes have problems? Yeah, so our immune system is fascinating in that it really involves every part of your body. The skin itself is part of your initial barrier with your immune system, that protective layer between you and the world around you. That's one of the ways in which we see kids with eczema having immune issues. That barrier gets broken down and all of a sudden, we're no longer responding in the way we should to protect ourselves. But on a much deeper cellular level, there's lots of different immune cells that are involved in keeping us protected, whether it's T cells and B cells and all kinds of details that we will not get into. Even as a fellow in immunology, <laughs> I was tortured with this for hours. But in general, there's all these different cells and they're crucial. And so you can see how when it, something is so complicated and varied, there are multiple checkpoints along the way where if something goes wrong or if something starts responding in a way that is abnormal, you can then develop that disease or that pathology that causes you to have symptoms that now you feel and you see, yeah. where normally that when that immune system is functioning the way it should, you wouldn't even notice it. So what are some common symptoms, Dr. Argenziano, that you see your patients coming in? Uh, what is the initial symptom that, that sends most people looking for answers? I think a lot of it is when they're going through their normal day-to-day -day lives and they start to experience joint swelling, for one thing. Their wrist becomes very swollen. Uh, or in some patients, one patient I saw yesterday, uh, she couldn't get out of bed. She was healthy one day and then she had so much joint and muscle pain she couldn't get out of bed. Uh, so I think it's just when you, you're going your day-to-day -day life and you start to develop rashes or difficulty breathing, um, kidney failure, but a lot of it is mostly pain, honestly. Yeah. Dr. Finley, what are some symptoms that you see? Is it more, more allergy related? Definitely both. And so sometimes it's someone coming in saying, I feel like there's something in my environment I'm reacting to, whether it's hives. And hives can play across both of our specialties. They can be allergic in nature, but they can also be related to autoimmune diseases. Or it's a patient who feels that a food or something they're ingesting is now causing this inflammatory response in their body that it never did before. Um, alternatively, we do see people who come in who, for whatever reason, now feel like they're getting sick all the time and they wonder if their immune system is just not functioning the way it should to defend them against those things. So that's interesting. My, my next question was gonna be about triggers, mm -hmm. but in some cases there is no specific trigger. There seems, uh, what would be some triggers that, that people should look out for if, uh, if they are starting to notice some problems? So I think, you know, first of all, I always want people to understand that nothing ever feels silly to us. We wanna see you, if you think something's wrong, there are specialists even who might not be able to know, so we don't expect a patient to know exactly what's going on. So anything that feels really, truly out of the ordinary, like you said, pain or extreme fatigue, or if someone feels that all of a sudden something they previously tolerated is causing some really adverse effects in their body, there is so much that's complicated about the immune system and about just your health and body in general that we want to work together with you as a partner to figure that out. Because we don't expect any layperson to have to be on their own in terms of figuring out what that trigger is for them. And part of that too is that there's so many other reasons for joint swelling, muscle pain, other than an autoimmune disease. Right. So I have to sit down with the person and really listen to their story and tether out what is musculoskeletal, whether they have osteoarthritis or wear and tear arthritis of their back, mm. or whether it's ankylosing spondylitis. 
So that, that's part of it, is a person may come in to see me and it may not be an autoimmune disease, it may be more of a mechanical orthopedics type of issue. Yeah. So my next question um, is who is prone to autoimmune diseases? Is it, is it anybody uh, that may be affected by this or do you see a specific um, make a segment of the, of the population? So with a rheumatologic type of issue, uh, uh, genetics does have a certain portion. Mm -hmm. uh, there are patients who, when I ask them their history, they have a cousin with lupus or a grandfather who had rheumatoid arthritis, mm. and now they're coming in with symptoms of something like myositis. So for example, with lupus overall, uh, well, let's take rheumatoid arthritis. If sure. we were identical twins and yeah. we had the exact same DNA, if you had rheumatoid arthritis, I, as your twin, would only have a 15% chance of developing rheumatoid oh, arthritis. So there is some type of genetic component, but it's not hereditary, whereas okay. if I have rheumatoid, yeah. I'm passing that on to my sons and daughters. Right. Okay. Very interesting. Um, how do you diagnose and what type of autoimmune disease a person has. Uh, what are some, Dr. Finley, what are some specifics that you can say? This is, uh, you know, I can specify this autoimmune disease versus another. Yeah, so we, um, in terms of the immunologic things that we see in the allergy clinic, it's, it's so, and I think for both of our specialties, it's so important, the history. There are tons of lab tests that we use as an adjunctive to our treatment and to our diagnosis but they only mean so much without the patient in front of us. And that is why it really takes us sitting down with a patient to hear, when did this start? What kind of symptoms are you having? What's making it feel better? What's making it feel worse? Family history. And we'll, all of those are things that we need to hear from the patient. We can't just get a blood test mm -hmm. and know. And that's why, again, it's so important for patients to know that we don't expect them to come in with a diagnosis or to come in, you know, that's our, that's our role is to help you as a team to get to that point. And so while there are lots of tests that are helpful or tests that might land you in one of our offices, they are not nearly as useful until we sit down and actually hear from the patient what's been going on. Yeah, Dr. Argenziano, do you want to talk about, you know, the detective work involved in uh, oh, getting a Oh, wow. It's, it's so much based on the conversation I have with my patient. Uh, the other thing is a physical exam. Uh, for example, if someone is having joint swelling and all the tests for rheumatoid arthritis, the blood tests are negative, uh, but I see the swelling and then I look closer and I see little tiny pits in the nails, mm. that's so highly specific for psoriatic arthritis and the right. patient may not even have psoriasis. So then at that point, it, it, you know, it may take a few visits or us just kind of being a detective, uh, but overall the disease eventually will present itself. Uh, now this was something that I think we had spoken before uh, we started filming. Um, how often do you have a patient come in and they've never even heard of the disease that they have been diagnosed with? Is that common? And in my world, it's very common. So uh, a lot of the diseases that can really um, cause a person a lot of organ involvement, like vasculitis, uh, that's when the immune system attacks the blood vessels. Not very common. Um, a common one above the age of 50 in young adults or older adults is polymyalgia rheumatica. Uh, big word, it just means <laughs> overall that uh, your immune system is causing inflammation 
and <laughs> people have a lot of shoulder pain and hip pain. But everything uh, is just very um, precise as far as their symptoms. But most of the people, other than rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, I think there's a lot of patients who have never heard of never a lot of rheumatologic heard. conditions. Yeah. All right. So um, what, are, what are the roles maybe that stress can play on the exacerbation uh, of these autoimmune diseases? I think that's huge. And I think that's something we're also coming more to understand as research progresses. One place that we see it in terms of the immune system kind of misbehaving is hives for us. So mm -hmm. hives, which can be totally benign, they can be an allergic reaction, or they can be a manifestation of an autoimmune disease. We know that stress lowers the threshold. And while they don't necessarily cause hives, right. the increased level of stress can actually lower your body's ability maybe to then prevent that reaction from mm -hmm. happening. Um, and so this is an area I think that we'll understand more in years to come. And I tell my patients all the time, I can't say never to questions you ask me that I don't know. Because <laughs> right. in 10, 15 years, we're gonna know so much more than we did even now. And so we're learning more about this, but there's been a lot of good data, at least in our field, to say that exacerbations of some of these conditions we see in the allergy and immunology world absolutely can be related to increased stress levels. Yeah. So that my next question, I guess, would be, um, how far have we come in understanding, better understanding autoimmune diseases? And, and how much progress do you see coming down the road? Dr. Artenziano? Oh, wow. In my field, rheumatology, it's huge. It started off in the 1990s. Uh, people were doing HIV AIDS research, and uh, they came out with um, anti-TNF medications with, which block a certain molecule. And some of the rheumatoid arthritis patients were in their studies, and it started to help arthritis. So we kind of stumbled upon that. Wow. But that was a game changer. Uh, before the very targeted therapy called biologic medication, overall, we would just suppress the entire immune system with something like prednisone or steroids. Sure. And those have a lot of side effects. Uh, but just since the 1990s, we keep coming up with targeted therapy for each, each individual uh, disease. I think lupus is where we've seen a lot of uh, newer uh, medications, which is fantastic because we haven't had a lot of really groundbreaking medications for lupus in a long time. I think the ability to hop on that, to target the immune system, is just amazing. And it's affecting all sorts of conditions, asthma, autoimmune diseases, immunodeficiencies, targeted gene therapies to help kids who have poorly functioning immune systems, ways to suppress just the allergic side of your immune system if you have asthma or really bad eczema without, like you said, having to suppress the entire immune system. It's amazing. And it's things we couldn't offer even six, seven years ago, we couldn't offer an eight-month-old with really bad eczema a targeted therapy beyond maybe systemic steroids once we had passed up the other therapies and they weren't working. Yeah. Now we have these biologic therapies, like you mentioned, that specifically target just the driver of that inflammation. And the outcomes that we see are so wonderful. And so it, the field itself, I think, in both of our fields, it's just really humbling to see as it grows and as the knowledge progresses. Yeah. Well, thank you. Guillain-Barre syndrome is a rare neurological disorder in which your immune system mistakenly attacks part of the peripheral nervous system. Through my work, I spoke with South Dakotan Julian Roseth and learned more about his own experience with GBS. Had either of you heard of Guillain-Barre syndrome before this? I'd, ne I'd never ever heard of it. GBS or Guillain-Barre syndrome 
is an autoimmune disease characterized by a person's immune system damaging parts of the patient's own nervous system. Went down to the bathroom and my legs didn't feel quite right and I go back to bed and then I get up and was checking our tablet where we got cameras in our cabin barn for checking heifers and I dropped it. Mm -hmm. I pick it up, I didn't think much, and go back to bed. Next morning, get up and was gonna pour my orange juice and it hit the floor and my fingers were numb. When he first came in, he was having much more difficulty swallowing uh, and his strength was greatly diminished compared to where we see him today. He had a peg tube and was receiving formula feedings for all meals. You know, he had to step back and think about it a little bit and um, it was just let's do it and you take one day at a time. It was, I was blinking for communication because I couldn't move anything. The treatment that worked the best was the plasma exchange. They originally were going to do eight, but once they noticed that he was responding to that treatment, then they decided on 10. He's able to grab my hands, give me a firm squeeze, pull and push. There's still not much strength in them, but I've, my arms are twice as good as they were when I came here. And so it was very encouraging. Each day, you took one day at a time, each day you looked for something that he didn't do the day before. Full recovery may take several years, and unfortunately there are some patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome who will have permanent lasting weakness or numbness or neuropathy following GBS. But the good news is that two to three years following the onset of symptoms, people with Guillain-Barre still report improvement. They give me a lot of exercises. Yeah. <laughs> Worked you pretty hard, haven't we, these last few yep. weeks? Things are getting better. All right, welcome back. Um, it's a very interesting segment. Uh, Working with that patient was, was really kind of eye-opening for me, um, seeing how certain treatments can really improve a, a patient's uh, quality of life. Can we talk about maybe uh, some treatments like, like a steroid, like the prednisone, um, and how, how safe, Dr. Argenziano, how, how safe are some of these treatments? When a person comes in, let's use rheumatoid arthritis for an example, and uh, the patient is in a wheelchair because they can't walk because their joints are so swollen. Uh, prednisone overall, because it suppresses the entire immune system, it's an easy way to get them with less pain and less swollen joints rather quickly. So it's what I call bridge therapy. Uh, you start getting the patient better with prednisone, and then we're waiting to get to the more targeted therapy. Uh, overall, prednisone has a ton of side effects. You know, I'm not gonna kid you. It uh, can cause infections. It can cause weight gain if you're on it for long periods of time. Uh, it can give you jitters. Some mm -hmm. people, it makes them moody. Some people, it gives insomnia. Trouble sleeping, yes. Right, but when you ask a person, um, you know, you tell them the side effects of the medication, they just want to feel better. They're okay taking those short-term side effects right. for just getting back their life at that point. So uh, with prednisone specifically, I do feel it has its place. It saved many lives, but it's not something that I can keep somebody on long-term. Can we talk more about why we would want to suppress the immune system uh, 
um, when we're, we're having difficulty with the immune system uh, in the first place. Absolutely. And one of those things that we touched on earlier was the idea of immune dysregulation. And so this inflammatory response that you can get from either an autoimmune disease or an immune system that's just gotten a little bit out of whack, suppressing that with something like prednisone can be helpful because you get that inflammatory state down. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, we've calmed and cooled things down. Right. But as was mentioned, we don't want to suppress the entire immune system for a long time because one of the side effects that we worry about in immunology with long-term steroid use is the increased risk of infection because one of the things we mm -hmm. don't want to do is to get every type of immune cell out of work. And so these targeted therapies that we mentioned before the segment, the biologic therapies can be really helpful in that way because they tend to target just that one area of the immune system that's causing the patient a problem. And which therapy you use is going to depend on the patient and their disease process. But using those targeted therapies allows us to suppress, in our field, maybe just the allergic inflammatory pathway in this one patient right. without affecting their ability to fight off, say, the common cold. Yeah. And that can really make a difference in their quality of life without putting them at risk. It's a bit of a, bit of a balancing act. It is. And it's amazing that we can even do it now. And it's really wonderful for our patients that we have it as an option. Before these new therapies came out, you would commonly see severe asthmatics who are steroid dependent. They were sure. on prednisone mm -hmm. all the time, and it comes with all those side effects potentially. And so now that we have other drugs to offer them, we're seeing quality of life improve drastically. The, you know, in, in my field in rehab, uh, occasionally you'll have a patient on prednisone, and as you start to wean them off, they don't like it. They, <laughs> it they're starting to feel worse again. And, yeah. and unfortunately, it's something that we just can't continue, we've got to eventually wean, like the bridge, like you said. Mm -hmm. um, so Dr. Argenziano, can we talk a little bit more about like recovering from these uh, conditions and like the, the journey that these patients go through as we find maybe more targeted or specific treatments? Absolutely, and your patient with Guillain-Barre is a perfect example, what he had to go through to just kind of make progress from that initial insult with this disease. Another example is someone, let's take a lupus patient. Right. Uh, if lupus has affected their kidneys, uh, we initially may treat them with prednisone and get them on the targeted therapy, but overall their kidneys have taken a hit. They're very sick. Sure. They may have ended up on dialysis. Um, and that overall can be a person who is in their 20s perfectly healthy and now needing to go to dialysis every other day. So that is not only a massive toll on a person's spirit, right. uh, you know, and it's also a toll mentally because mentally and physically they're 20 years old. But I have them tell me I feel like I'm 80 or 90. Some people say, you know, uh, I'm 20 years old, but I have to use the handicapped toilet because otherwise my joints won't allow me to get up and down easily. So overall, it's a large journey, so I have to be there. And what I love about my job is that I have, to, I have the, the blessing to be through all of their journey recovering from that. We can get you better, but you also have to nurture and get on the right diet and exercise and just be brave and strong and it's gonna get better over time. Yeah, I, I, I love to see that progression when the patient first comes in and they're really struggling. And then, you know, in, in my field in rehab, you know, we get them physically strong enough to return to their, to their daily lives. What does recovery look like if, if you're dealing with a patient with, with allergies or with 
food issues. So that can be a very different picture depending on the patient. So some conditions that we see, like food allergies or asthma, are not necessarily something we're going to grow out of. And so similarly, it is a journey. Um, now some of these things, like some food allergies, children will outgrow. Um, some asthmatics, we can really get them to a point where it's not affecting their daily life. But a lot of the conditions we see are going to be lifelong. Our patients with immunodeficiency, they will likely be dealing with these conditions long term. And so it's something where it really does take a partnership with the patient and it takes learning how to manage their disease. Um, our patients who have adult onset immune system issues where their immune system doesn't function well, we have therapies that they may be on for the rest of their life. They may not be able to, you know, stop their medications, but like we said with these newer, more targeted medications, we can do that in a way where they still have a full quality of life. I think that uh, adaptation is something that we, we deal with in medicine because as patients are dealing with these health issues, they have to learn that things aren't going to be the way they were before their diagnosis. Can you talk a little bit about how patients need to, to learn to adapt? Um, I, I have conversations with my patients, especially when they come in and they're discouraged. Uh, someone I saw yesterday, uh, she had just started to run. It was a passion of hers. And she went out for like a small run and she ended up falling and tripping. So I tell them overall, you know, you have to realize and knowing this that you have to grieve the person that you were before, but you're going to come out uh, someone different and different doesn't always mean worse. And you know, it's just a lot of counseling and almost being a cheerleader for them because mm -hmm. if they get discouraged, then they're not going to exercise to get stronger muscles. Uh, sometimes patients get discouraged and they get tired of taking all these medicines, but if they don't take the medicines, they take two steps backwards. So overall, it's me reminding them that it's a balance between diet and exercise and medications and just buckling down and doing the hard work to just kind of keep improving every day. Every day is a victory as long as you're not going backwards. So there are certain things that our patients can do, certain things that, that we all can do to live healthier lives, but what are some environmental factors that, that may be out of our control as far as we're just gonna have to live in a world where there's peanuts. Yeah, and we do. Some of us are happy about peanuts, but for those kids who are peanut allergic, that can be really tough. And so there are things out of your control. Um, there are ways in which we interact with our environment that either affects our health or those around us, the health of those around us. And so we, part of it for us, I think also, is making sure our patients don't live in fear. Mm -hmm. You know, especially in the world of allergy, and when you come to parents of kids with allergies, as a parent, I understand that stress level. It's completely yeah. different um, when you're a parent or a grandparent dealing with this, and you can't control, say, the food or the people around you. Um, but it's teaching our patients and giving them the agency to advocate for themselves, and then right. also to really understand where true risk lies and where it doesn't. Because we, the last thing we want is our patients to be paralyzed by fear mm -hmm. or concern or dominated by this condition. It's a part of you, but it is not all of you. And so we really want them to be able to understand what the facts are when it comes to food allergy. Is airborne peanut allergy really a concern for your child? Luckily, probably not. And that's helpful even just to talk through that at a very basic level. 
um, and let people know where real fear exists, but also where maybe we can take some of that away and give you some of that agency and power back in your day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Dr. Argenziano, I, that, that issue of fear and helping get the patients maybe at a place where they're more comfortable with understanding what's going on, how do you deal with that? Oh, it's education, education, education. Mm -hmm. It's being able to bring my medical background with all of the details and bring it down to a level where it's very understandable because the more the disease, it, it can feel like your power is taken away, but the way you learn about what it's doing to your body, you learn about how the medications are going to help you, it gives you that power back. And yeah. so people can feel, well, I'm, I'm me, I just happen to have lupus. Lupus is not who I am. So right. yeah, so it's educating the patient, absolutely. So our viewers at home may have questions. When do you, would you say is a good time for them to seek uh, a professional? I think at any point when you have questions you feel you can't answer, we always want to see you and mm -hmm. talk to you. And even with our consultants, we get a lot of patients from primary care providers in the area, and we are always happy to see the patient because a lot of time there is maybe a misconception that we can help clear up, and yeah. that can really help a patient step forward more confidently in their path. And so anytime a patient has a question about, am I allergic to this, or is this pain I'm experiencing something more sinister, we want to help you work through that because we hope that we can say, no, go ahead, eat the fish. We want you to eat the fish. It's right. delicious. But sometimes we need to reevaluate that with you and make sure that's the right choice. And so anytime, we want to happy, see how we're happy to see you at any point. And just to piggyback on that, I think I get a lot of patients where they don't have a rheumatologic condition. But if through detective work, like you say, yeah. we're able to find out that they need to see a hand surgeon or a neurosurgeon or they need to see an allergy immunology physician. Right. Uh, that's the thing is that, you know, a lot of people who come in don't have a rheumatologic condition, but we're able to put them on the right path to healing. Perfect. Celiac disease has seen an upward trend in visibility and diagnosis in recent decades. In fact, an estimated 3 million individuals are now diagnosed with the disease. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer spoke with a patient and Dr. Sarah Maroquin to learn more about the disease. Dr. Sarah Maroquin is a specialty care doctor from Avera Health who sees patients with celiac disease. Basically what it is is um, a reaction to gluten, which is a protein found in like wheat or rye, um, that causes chronic inflammation of the cells and also um, malabsorption. Sarah Amen is a student from SDSU who has celiac, and she didn't find out till she was a sophomore in high school. It was really difficult because I was having a lot of unknown symptoms and we weren't really sure what was wrong. And then finally being diagnosed, it kind of flips your whole world upside down. Making food can be stressful as she must search for products that are gluten-free. First and foremost, the certified gluten-free label or the Beyond Celiac gluten-free label, both of those have to contain under one part per million of gluten, which is under the level your body can detect. However, now that Amen has lived with it for many years, she says it's not difficult, but there are certain things she must look out for. The only times it's different is when I have to go to like a party somebody's hosting or someone wants to take me out to eat, things like that. I kind of have to be like, hey, I'm gluten-free. Like, can we make sure there's an option for me? 
and just like explaining to people who maybe don't understand. If she does eat anything with gluten, Amon says the symptoms can be harsh. So I get a very terrible migraine headache and a stomach ache, and I will be sick for about three days straight. If you get any gluten in your diet, you will, even if it's microscopic, it can cause the symptoms to continue. And she says the basic preparations people make with food are things she needs to watch out for. I have roommates, so I have to make sure like they don't touch anything because you don't think about putting a knife into the mayo jar, spreading it on bread and putting it back in the mayo jar. But it's like, as soon as that happens, I can't eat that at all anymore. But with more gluten-free options coming every year, managing celiac disease is getting easier. Luckily, we live in a time now where gluten-free is a lot easier than it was probably 20 years ago. Welcome back. Uh, interesting discussion on celiac disease. Um, can we talk more about, you know, uh, an abnormal response to a food? Um, when do we say an allergy versus, say, a sensitivity? I think it's a really wonderful distinction to make because it is a question a lot of our patients have. And so immune responses to food can be varied. Celiac disease involves an abnormal response to gluten, the proteins that we think of in breads and wheats, but it is not an allergic response per se. Now, the patient still can't tolerate the food, mm -hmm. but allergy is a different type of immune response to food where we see specific allergic antibodies to different foods. And that's an important distinction to make with our patients, partly because the treatment is different. Now, both groups are going to avoid the food, but the treatment, if you had a flare of those symptoms, would also be different. And it's not something we expect our patients to know on their own. It's something we work with them to help figure out, to diagnose, and then also to give them the tools to treat and manage going forward. Celiac disease is fascinating because we also see it present sometimes for us as eczema. So I actually had a patient this year who had been oh, treated sure. with yeah. eczema for years, but she actually had dermatitis herpetiformis, which is a skin condition. It's very itchy, so it often feels and looks like eczema to the patient. But it was actually a teenager who for years instead of being treated for eczema, what she really had was dermatitis herpetiformis. And when we took gluten out, it resolved completely. So Dr. Argenziano, do you see other connections that it may appear to be one thing and then you discover it's something else entirely? Yes, celiac is a perfect example. Uh, patients coming in because they have a rash and their joints are swollen and they hurt and the referral was for lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis. And after we've done the lab testing, the clinical exam, we find out it's celiac disease because celiac patients can have a lot of joint pain. Uh, but when they eliminate the gluten from their diet, it's an easy fix because nine times out of 10, all the joint pain goes away when gluten is taken out. What a relief to find the correct diagnosis. Um, what are some questions that a patient may ask the healthcare provider to maybe help them down that path towards discovering uh, that diagnosis? I think that's, I've, I love that question because I think getting the patient in a place of advocacy for themselves is really important. And so one thing that I love to hear my patients ask is, well, what does my treatment look like in five or 10 years? And maybe mm -hmm. it's the same medication we're yeah. on now, but maybe there's another path that we're going towards. What are my options? Where is this research going? Because especially for us, when we talk about celiac and food allergy, 
in the area of food allergy alone, the progress that we're making, the way that medicine is changing is really amazing. We are offering oral desensitization to certain foods now, where children who have severe food allergy are having the option now to desensitize to that food so that a kid with peanut sure. allergy maybe now can go out and eat without worrying about cross-contamination with peanuts, not having that anxiety about anaphylaxis. So I love when patients come in asking about, well, where, where is this going? Where's the direction of care going? Because we might not be able to desensitize you now to milk, but you know what? In five or 10 years, that might be the direction we're going towards. Right, yeah. So how, how do you see uh, the patient's questions or, or advocating for themselves as helping you towards that? diagnosis? I feel that the more questions that patients have, for example, I will be in an interview with a patient and not even thinking of a specific uh, disease pathway, and they'll come out of the blue and say, you know, um, I have this weird rash on my elbow, mm. or my eyes, two years ago, my eye was very red and inflamed and painful, and the doctor gave me a steroid shot in the eye any little thing that is so specific that they may not feel is even relevant could be that one clue to the diagnosis. So that's why uh, when I get a patient in the office, they have to fill out this form with every little symptom because anything could be that clue to making the diagnosis and getting them onto the path of healing. Uh, a thought occurred to me, and we live in a, a WebMD world where, where people occasionally will self-diagnose and they'll come in saying, Doc, I've got celiac disease. How do you guys work with the patients who, who maybe think they know exactly what's going on uh, to, to broaden their horizons that maybe there's something more? That can be a tough situation. We see that a lot sometimes in our field with allergic cells, mast cells, mast cell activation disorder syndrome. Um, associations between different rheumatologic conditions or things like fibromyalgia with allergic disorders that may or may not be true associations. Um, it's, it's helpful to sit down and discuss with the patients that for many of these things, we do have clear diagnostic criteria. Mm -hmm. And while we might not be able to figure it out right in that visit, oftentimes we can use these proposed diagnostic criteria to really give you an answer as to whether that's what's going on. And the thing that's important to remember as a provider too is that the person's coming in with this diagnosis because something is wrong. Something is making them feel badly. Mm -hmm. And they want an answer. And this is the answer they've come up with. And sometimes they've got the nail right on the head, you know, but sure. sometimes <laughs> it's not, you know, and that's yeah. our role to help tease out. And um, the, in, the bottom line is that something is making you feel badly. You're seeking care and help. And so we're going to work with you to find out what that is. And it may not be what you brought in right. to me that day, but we're going to help figure out what it is. That's funny because uh, I see a lot of patients when they come in and uh, every time uh, they ask about a certain question or something they've re read, I kind of pause and I say, oh, with what your research is, what do you think you have? Mm -hmm. And so they, they tell me and honestly, <laughs> Uh, it, it allows me to focus on how to give them the proper information or it's exactly what they have. I've had right. patients who have come in and they say, you know, I have these symptoms and I did this research and I think that I have rheumatoid arthritis. And they come in and I'd be like, well, you're exactly right. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, that's the thing. Patients, uh, they're not coming to us because 
they want to spend their money on us or they want to go to doctors all the time. Something's wrong, like you said. Uh, but overall, it's just making that diagnosis that it, it it's a partnership. So when you have made the diagnosis, how do you differentiate some treatments between like a rheumatoid arthritis versus psoriatic arthritis versus a common arthritic That's a great condition. question. So, you know, if it's osteoarthritis, wear and tear arthritis, we, that takes a different pathway. But if someone has rheumatoid arthritis, which is a true autoimmune disease, mm -hmm. there's a lot of overlap with the medications. Uh, you know, she may use the same medications I do, but they're for completely different diseases. Yeah. So there are medications uh, for rheumatoid arthritis that we've used in treatment of COVID-19. Uh, some medicines for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis overlap. Uh, TNF blockers, they're used for psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis. So that's the beauty of targeted therapy is that it's not just specific to one disease. So uh, some medications, some treatment options do seem to be more effective for some than others. Mm -hmm. uh, why is that and, and how do you try to target that perfect? So on a broader sense, you know, obviously depending on the patient's disease process, say take asthma. Do you have allergic asthma? Or mm -hmm. in some patients, actually asthma is not allergic and it's something called a neutrophilic asthma. Some of that we can tease out ahead of time. And some of it I tell patients, your body didn't always read the textbook. Sometimes I give you a medication and I think this should work really well for you. <laughs> but we get into a few months of therapy and you say, you know, I just don't feel as good as I want to. The, the response which, the patient exactly. is not what, we're, what we were hoping Exactly, for. and so sometimes that's something we can't know until we try it, and so then, you know, we stop and we reassess. I tell all my patients, you know, if we're on doing something and you don't feel like you're getting the response you should, that's time for us to sit down, whether it's allergy shots, whether it's your asthma therapy, whether it's your eczema therapy, if you don't feel good enough, we need to sit down and talk about, well, what's next? Do we need to change this? Do we need to try a different medication? And now that we do have more of these options coming out, we have different things that we can try. And then very occasionally, we need to go back and say, are we treating the right thing? Yes. Right. Because sometimes Absolutely. things have evolved to the point where maybe you were labeled as asthma, but you know what? You just are not responding the way we think you should. Let's start back at square one and mm -hmm. make sure that things are really not being missed. That detective work. Absolutely, and patience from the patient. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing, yeah. We, we discussed it a little bit briefly when we would talk about immunosuppression, but uh, why do treatments for one group of autoimmune disease inadvertently provoke or maybe even worsen other autoimmune diseases? Is that something we can talk about? Yes, a good example for uh, patients with psoriatic arthritis. Um, well, actually, let's take rheumatoid arthritis. Sure. A patient may come in and we uh, find out that they want to try a TNF blocker and with that particular medication, they're on it for three or four months, doing great, their joints look fantastic, but now they have a rash on their foot and the rash gets worse and worse. Mm. They've developed psoriasis from that particular medication. So now I have to stop that medication and put them on a different medication because of that reaction. So the immune system doesn't always read the textbooks and play the game by the rules. Right. So we're treating one mm. disease, but then it's created another. This is a question for both of you, but uh, just a discussion point for the whole country. How has COVID changed uh, or maybe increased the number of autoimmune diseases 
or what has the landscape looked like in the last few years? The first thing I tell patients is there is so much we don't know. Mm -hmm. We can go anecdotally about what we've seen, but research and medical research in particular is so detailed and takes time to really know what is anecdotal and observational and what's a true cause and effect. And so I tell my patients, give us grace when it comes to COVID-related sequelae mm -hmm. because things like long COVID, things like the pulmonary effect, the lung effect that COVID has long-term, we just, we don't have all the data to say for sure how that's gonna look in five or 10 years. Um, we didn't even talk about COVID five years ago and now we're trying to find the answers for five years right. from now. Yeah. And so I, I think that's a question we just, and you jump in if you feel differently, mm -hmm. I think it's just a question we just don't know the answer to yet. Right. Working in a hospital as an RN, I definitely have the anecdotal, I can say, Boy, it seems like we've seen a lot of Guillain-Barre this year, um, you know, an increase in some of these autoimmune diseases. But what have you seen in the last few years, changes in the landscape uh, in your I would say treatment? particularly with COVID, what happens, and this is not just with COVID-19, this is with a lot of viruses and bacteria, is when that is introduced into your immune system, your immune system has to choose what to do with that. Mm -hmm. uh, there are certain markers in our blood that we use for diagnostic testing. The anti-nuclear antibody protein is one of those. And in patients who have COVID-19 or the flu or Parvo B19, if you test that patient, shortly after their viral or bacterial infection, it's going to be positive. Mm. So when patients come into their primary physicians complaining of or being concerned with pain or fatigue, and they're like, oh, I think you might have lupus, and they check that, it may be positive, and then they come into me, and when I recheck it, it's negative because it's had time to work its way out of its system. So I think I get a lot more false positive results with our autoimmune testing. So they come in with that test, but they don't necessarily have that disease. It's transient. I think one thing that's important to remember is you don't exist in a silo. You know, you exist right. as part of all of this environment around you. Your genetics play a huge role in the way that you respond to your environment. We have seen this past year with the increase in wildfire smoke, with all the smoke sure. coming down from Canada, we actually have seen that that is hugely affecting not only asthmatics, which makes sense to us, mm -hmm. but actually environmental allergies. Our patients right. with environmental allergies get an overall inflammatory response to these irritants that causes these symptoms to be worse. And so you really, you can't just take your one body and how that immune cell, cell should work and how it should respond because there's so many other factors out there that are playing upon you. Our immune systems are complex, uh, multi-layered, and all of these pieces are playing different roles. Um, I really appreciate you guys coming and, and chatting with me. Thanks for having um, us. Anything that you want to leave the viewers with? Um, I would say at this point, if you are having symptoms, you know, talk to your doctor and the doctors. Uh, the primary care, they're, they're the ones who are in the trenches seeing the patients initially and doing the proper testing. And um, at that point, just talk to your doctor to see if you need a rheumatology evaluation. Yeah. Talk to your doctors. All right. We'll be back after this.
Looking for a source of trusted health information? Grab a copy of your local newspaper or read online the newest Prairie Doc Perspective, a weekly health and medical column. Head to prairiedoc.org to access all archive columns today. Recently, I met a new patient who had waited several months for her appointment. At this first meeting, I was quickly able to diagnose rheumatoid arthritis. Like others with this disease, her joints were swollen and she was stiff getting up and moving to the exam table. During our discussion, I learned that she had felt well until about six months before. There was no good explanation for the onset of her symptoms, so she asked the question many ask, why did this happen? As a rheumatologist, I specialize in managing autoimmune diseases, such as rheumatoid arthritis, as well as several others. Autoimmune disorders are a group of diseases where the immune system mistakenly targets and attacks the body's own tissues. The system of checks and balances that keeps our immune system running is broken, and the attack goes unaddressed by the body. Managing autoimmune disease means turning down the volume on an overactive immune system to alleviate symptoms and prevent damage to one's body. Like my patient, many ask what makes our immune system make these mistakes? Well, as we understand it, a combination of genetic predisposition and environmental triggers plays a role in the development of autoimmune disorders. Certain genes are associated with an increased risk Environmental factors, such as infection, exposure to certain chemicals, or hormonal imbalances could trigger or exacerbate an immune response. All this is to say there are multiple reasons an autoimmune disorder flares up, but it is difficult to determine the exact cause, and likely there is more than one factor. Diagnosing autoimmune disorders can be challenging. The symptoms are wide-ranging and overlap other diseases. We have blood tests that identify specific markers of disease and inflammation. During the physical exam, I look for rashes, joint swelling, circulation changes, hair loss, weight loss, and weakness, amongst other things. Interpreting the patient's story, lab tests, and exam together helps paint a picture that leads to a specific diagnosis. However, the work isn't done once there's a diagnosis. Treatment for autoimmune disorders is unique to each person. Rheumatologists can prescribe medications that target specific immune cells that drive the process. Traditional treatments such as corticosteroids and immunosuppressants are used, but newer, specific cell therapies such as monoclonal antibodies, are also effective. We are also learning about ways to mobilize the immune system and restore its resilience. The future of medicine looks to tailor treatment based on an individual's genetic profile and disease characteristics. Today, I can offer my new patient confidence that she will feel better with current treatments. However, she will have to take those medicines to remain comfortable. Ideally, we will soon find treatments that allow patients to stop medication and be well. The future holds promise that we will improve diagnosis, targeted treatments, and quality of life for people living with autoimmune disorders. 
thank you to our guests, Dr. Argenziano, Dr. Finley, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about autoimmune diseases. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper or online, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. So from all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thank you for joining us for another episode of health information based on science, built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. My name is Tom Dean. I'm a volunteer board member for the Healing Words Foundation. I grew up on a farm near Wessington Springs, actually a farm that was only a few miles from where my great-grandfather homesteaded, so our family roots are deep there. I went to high school in Wessington Springs and then to Carleton College in Minnesota and from there to medical school in Rochester, New York. Access to health services is quite limited. So the, the Prairie Doc activities allows people to have contact with medical professionals from a variety of disciplines. The uniqueness is the fact that it's independent. It's not associated with any of the various competing forces that sort of control health services today. It's objective, independent, and I believe reliable. I think having access to health information that people really do trust is a tremendously valuable service. And that's true whether you're in the prairies of South Dakota or the middle of New York City. For more information or to donate, head to www.prairiedoc.org or send your donations to Post Office Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota, 57006. Thank you for your support. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by at Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pierre District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.